0: So, before we go into the recession, just a few comments about space. Within this samsaric domain, within our conditioned existence, the most primal type of space, at least in the Dzogchen tradition, is the substrate. So, you know about this when your mind is dissolved into this continuum. And in fact, the substrate consciousness itself, in deep dreamless sleep, non-lucid dreamless sleep, or when you're under general anesthesia, or when you've fainted, or when you're at the at the dead point in the dying process, you have become dead. Uh, On those occasions, then the when it's non-lucid, the substrate consciousness actually, in a manner of speaking, dissolves into substrate. So you're not explicitly aware of anything at all. If you're under general general anesthesia, you don't, you, you don't know anything at all. So you have more consciousness than a glass of water, which doesn't have a pilot light, if we use, go back to that metaphor. It doesn't have a pilot light. There's nothing you can do to it to make it wake up. Whereas if you, hopefully you do come out of anesthesia and so on. So when you're there, the nature of the substrate, its, it's, it's essential nature is of unknowing or avidya because you just don't know anything. But I wouldn't say that the glass of water doesn't know anything. I would say it's a categorical a categorical error to talk about it not knowing anything, because it, the words don't even apply. There's nothing it can ever do to become knowing. Whereas when you're resting in the substrate, you're resting in a state of unknowing, and it's said that it obscures. The substrate, of course, is a... A relative truth which means it fully obscures something. Kunzop or sambriti. It totally obscures. That's the nature of conventional reality or relative reality altogether, but specifically the substrate is obscuring a deeper reality. Right? Any guesses what that deeper reality might be? Amy? Good guess. Not quite quite on, but yeah, good guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, any other guesses? Dharma Yeah, Dharma exactly. The substrate consciousness being a samriti, a, a type of reality that totally obscures another one, that would be the one that would be kind of a perfect match, the substrate consciousness. As long as you're embedded in that, as long as you're meshed in that, as long as you're identifying with that, that's obscuring the deeper reality, which is right there. Again, it's not one floor down or someplace else and there's a wall in between. It's right where the substrate consciousness is. It's nowhere else. And likewise, right where the substrate is, That's where the dharmadhatu, ultimate reality, Dhammata, that's where it is. But it obscures that which is, in a manner of speaking, hidden in plain sight. But then those karmic energies stir, or vasanas. uh, Vasanas, kind of these imprints of the mind, they stir. And substrate consciousness emerges from the substrate, and then I think I went through this sequence before. It's straight from the vajra essence. And from the substrate consciousness, if, if this waking up process continues, coming from deep, dreamless sleep to the waking state, from the substrate emerges the substrate consciousness. From the substrate consciousness, this catalyzes the klistamanas, this primal sense of I am, this pre-articulate, pre-conceptual kind of coagulation of a sense of me over here and space over there. It's a really raw, primitive Bifurcation of experience into subject and object. But then the next, but that catalyzes a subtle mentation or manas. And this is where we start to distinguish, but in a preconceptual way, not yet caught up in thought, but starting just to be able to to distinguish like hot and cold or color from sound. Really raw, very primitive. And so, but now with that, and then the coarse mentation that occurs, which then is embedded in conceptualization here's what seems to happen. It's, I think it's a very close interpretation to what Padmasambhava says in the Vajra Essence and elsewhere. And that it's, in a manner of speaking, I'll use a little bit of an analogy here, that this primal space of the substrate, when, it's, it, when mentation arises, mentation is that which discerns, distinguishes, separates, So it's as if this kind of primal, raw, foundational samsaric space gets refracted. Refracted. And just like light passing through a prism and gets refracted. Then this primal space of the substrate gets refracted into six spaces. Space of the mind, which the substrate already is, but now is a space of the mind in which thoughts are arising and images and memories and so forth and so on. And then, of course, five other types of space the visual, the auditory, and so forth. So it's mentation rooted in, preceded by a sense of I am that refracts space itself into subspaces and then refracts the substrate consciousness into the flow of mental consciousness, of which we're very well aware right now, as well as the five sensory modes. So the substrate seems to be refracted into five types of domains, six I should say, and the substrate consciousness into six corresponding modes of consciousness. And so now we bring this right to experience. Oh, and then after course, course mentation, uh, then comes in the whole field of memory, thought, personal identity, and so forth, and then it's just normal consciousness. But, but in the falling asleep process, it, just, it follows the same reverse route. And in the formation of an embryo, it follows that route from the substrate right through to having a human mind. And when you die, there's a symmetry again, going from the human mind dissolving right back into substrate. Okay. The, ver- the variability there is whether you're lucid or not. You might come into this world if you're highly realized tuku, You might come in lucid, and just be through the whole process lucid. And if you're lucid, you know, if you if you've accomplished something, then as you're dying, you may go right through lucid that way as well, which would be a great boon. But we're coming close to the meditation now, and so when we are attending to the space of the body, number one, tactile perception, tactile consciousness, one of the six, has the sensory, the somatic field, tactile field, and its domain. Kind of, it owns it, right? It owns it. So, with our tactile perception, we experience hot, cold, motion, and so forth. The five, the four elements, also the different types of feelings, pleasure, pain, indifference, within the within the somatic field. Right. But now, as we'll do for roughly the first half of the session, which will be silent, so I'm going to front-load the session, what I would suggest for the first half is that we take the space of the body and whatever rises within it as the object. So we're familiar with this by now. But this means we're directing mental consciousness. It jumps out of its field. It's not, Of course, it's the one that, it's the one that gets loose. Tactile never goes into visual. Visual never goes into auditory. They're stuck. Mental has a kind of a, a Uriel pass. You know. It can just go anywhere, anywhere. I look over at Diana; there she is. So my mental consciousness is then going into my visual, visual field. If I should tap her on the shoulder and be aware of doing so, being attending, hi Diana. and I touch her on the shoulder, then the mental is going to the tactile sensation, and so on, right? So when we are, as we will for the first half of this session, we'll bring the full force, as well as we can, single-pointedly focus mental consciousness on the somatic field and whatever arises within it, then there are two types of consciousness operating there, but this means there's two types of space as well. There's the tactile space, there's also the relative dharmadatu. Remember, out of 18 datus, 18 domains, the relative dharmadhatu is simply the domain of experience that is, that is apprehended by mental consciousness. Okay? So the limited mental space is what's left over when you're dreaming. Right, and those are just mental events. Or when you're single pointedly focusing on settling the mind in this natural state, you're focusing on this subset of mental space, which is which is populated by simply mental events. Right, so that's single pointed. But now, when the mental consciousness moves over to the, to the tactile field, then the tactile field, that domain, is now coextensive with the mental, the dhammadata. Because mental consciousness is every, aware of everything that's happening in the tactile. So you have two spaces kind of superimposed upon each other. Right? Now, this can be a skillful means. This is a bit theory there. But theory, in this retreat, theory is always for the sake of practice. It's, I mean, that's my motivation. I don't talk about just stuff give, give us inter, intellectual entertainment. So as we spend the first half of this session focusing on the space of the body and whatever arises within it, what I'm inviting you to do is to let your, the, your dhammadhatu, the, the domain of literally of phenomena, but here dharma or phenomena refers specifically to phenomena apprehended by mental consciousness. Right. Well, that's actually everything. Emptiness, elementary particles, feelings, thoughts, the, the fragrance of roses and so forth. All of these can be objects of mental consciousness, Right? So they're all dharmas, which means they're phenomena. And the domain of mental consciousness is the dharmadhatu. Well, your Datu is now melting into or merging with the space of the body. right? And what I'm inviting you to do, as a preparation for settling the mind in its natural state, is let the space of your mind, which is now coextensive, co- extensive with space of the body, I mean pretty much, apart from wandering thoughts and noise, but single-pointedly focusing on that, that you're letting the space of your mind, your dhammadhatu, which is the focus of your attention, be filled with this, and this is the the critical point, this non-conceptual space. Because thoughts don't arise in the somatic field. Tactile sensations do, feelings, pleasure, pain, and difference, yes. But do thoughts occur in the kneecap, or in the region of your belly, or your heart? the answer is no. Tactile sensations, yes. And so by letting the space of your mind, which is now focused and selective, you could have gone to auditory, you could have gone to the uniquely mental domain, where thoughts are. But we've chosen, as a preliminary exercise, to focus the mental consciousness, which means it brings with it its mental domain, merge that with the somatic. The somatic is non-conceptual. The idea here is to fill your mental domain with non-conceptual sensations, which kind of relieve. So it fills it. It fills it. And you non-conceptually are aware of non-conceptual sensations arising in the space. It's again filling the glass full of water, putting a cap on it, and then sucking all the water out to create a vacuum. We're filling the space of your mind with just the space of the body and non-conceptual sensations. Give it some space. Get it to quiet down. Get it to empty out of all the noise that the space of the mind is normally filled with and fill it instead with non-conceptual, non-chatty tactile sensations, solidity, moisture, heat, motility. Then you've gotten some peace and quiet, a little bit. Then, okay, ready to launch. And then you direct your attention to the space of the mind. And now you have a better chance of not being sucked into every thought and image and memory and so forth that comes up. Because you've you've kind of rested, and so it's less density, less overwhelming. Rather than being in a waterfall and ca- and being thrown over the cliff, with the water, is rather like standing on the edge on the sh- on the on the on, the, on the, the ground right next to a mountain brook, and watching the water flow by, rather than being a leaf carried downstream. Okay, that's kind of the idea. It's strategy, it's skillful means. Okay, so more or less first half focusing on the space of the body whatever sensations but with a special emphasis bit of selectivity on those nice rhythmic soothing soothing predictable sensations of the in and out breath the respiration do that for a while big emphasis relaxation and stillness that's what mindfulness of breathing is really good for so soothing it's almost like getting a massage like something very regular, just kind of like a nice, regular, rhythmic massage of breathing out, relaxing, breathing out, relaxing. Right? First half, relaxation and stability, and then at your leisure, you don't need to count the minutes when you feel like it. Then direct your attention to the space of the mind. Whatever arises, same quality of awareness in both: the still, unwavering mindfulness observing the movements within the body, the still, unwavering mindfulness observing the movements in the mind. So in that way, very similar. And so I call that balancing earth and wind. Earth as in the body, the the somatic, the tactile, and where earth element is pretty prominent. It's kind of grounded, it's soothing, it's calming. And then facing into the wind of the thoughts, memories, emotions, and so forth. And if you do have that sense of ease, that sense of relaxation, then you have a better chance of not being blown away, being carried away by every thought, memory, and so forth that comes up. Okay? Okay, that's our strategy. So please find a comfortable position. We'll have one assignment session. Onaso. So we continue now with and root text and commentary. So if just finish the first verse pertaining to the um, preparation for the shamatha, and then we continue with the the root verse. With a mind that is perfectly virtuous, give yourself over to going for refuge and arousing awakening mind. Then meditate on the profound path of guru-yoga. After hundreds of fervent appeals, or I usually word, use the word supplication, they're both fine, your guru dissolves into you. So one could spend a lot of time on that verse, but I'll try to be very concise. It is extremely important. And that is whether, when you're doing going into this practice, uh, whether and you're going to see he's going to be kind of pairing subtly in the mind in his natural state with awareness of awareness, going to give you choices there. But if you ask, is that, is that practice, is it virtuous? What would you say, Daniel? Just the sheer fact, okay, I'm going to now observe thoughts. I'm going to rest awareness and awareness. What would you say, Daniel? Is that by nature virtuous? Neutral. Neutral, yeah. And could it be unwholesome? Could it be, could it be unwholesome? Neutral. No, but it couldn't, it couldn't possibly be unwholesome? You're right. It's just observing thoughts. What is it? Ethically neutral. But could it be something negative? not just gra- grasping probably would be there but I wouldn't say negative I mean something really negative karma afflictive really going into a bad direction Kathy, what do you say yes yeah you could, one could have this could be a preparation for you know using a silly example robbing a bank I want to be really calm cool as a cucumber I heard from Alan this is the best way to rob a bank <laughs> you know mine's still like an unflickering candle flame ladies and gentlemen this is a stick up remain calm I'm calm <laughs> you remain calm just give me all your money I can imagine that and so then it's just a preparation for, you know, doing something unwholesome. And so whether or not this is even virtuous depends on the motivation. That's why we're starting with Refuge and Bodhicitta. Make it not only virtuous, but fabulously virtuous. But also, here's a very important point, and some of you already encountered this. Um, when you go into this practice, either one of them, settling the mind or awareness of awareness, you're going into unexplored territory. Some of you are already finding, this is the difference in my perspective. Maybe I'm, I know I'm jaded. Maybe the part of my jadedness. But when engaging in philosophical investigation, I've done that. I've written a number of books on philosophy. You don't really find surprises because you're going chuk, 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 you know, with logical analysis and so forth. But scientists are often surprised by what they find. Galileo was surprised to find that there were moons around Jupiter. He just thought there were stars. But then he took a second look, and lo and behold. So scientists are often surprised because it's not just a result of logical analysis. Contemplatives are surprised by what comes up because it's empirical. This type of practice is not a philosophical exercise. It's much more in the vein of contemplative science than it is contemplative philosophy. And so we're going into uncharted territory and sometimes, you know, there are demons in there. There are, there are very threatening things in there, unpleasant things, unwholesome things. And so to go in with a sense of security... You know, when a sense of security in the early settlers in America that's the the continent I know best when they're heading out there getting to the the west coast the Oregon trail the wagon trains and all of that um, you know the earliest ones they're going into uncharted territory and so if you're in a wagon train you're bringing your children your family and so forth you would like to know that okay this can be dangerous there will be probably times that are dangerous do you have a good guide can you count on your fellow wagoneers your guru and your sangha and do you have good dharma? And that is a good map. Mm-hmm. And does, does your guide know the map? And has he—probably as a he back then—they uh, were all he. But does your guide know the way? You know. And if you have that security, we've come well prepared. Where we need weapons, we have weapons. Where we need, we, okay. And this is a good guide we can rely on. Then you have the boldness, you have the courage, and a sense of ease that this is not just a terror-stricken adventure, but in fact, it's a great adventure. But there has to be some sense of security, some sense of ease, some sense of you're okay. That's what refuge is for. Because this is the path. This is an ancient path. You know, it's a very ancient path. right? Followed not only by the Buddhist Shakyamuni who's explored the depths of his mind all the way down to the ground, but this specifically this great lineage of Mahamudra and Dzogchen, Which is, you know, if we... And there's a whole book. Somebody wrote a whole book on the Mahasiddhas, the, the, the 80, 84 Mahasiddhas, I think it is, or 80 Mahasiddhas, there's a lot of literature out there, and just how how did they turn out, you know, Saraha and Maitripa and Virupa and these great Indian masters, and then the great masters of Tibet. How did they they did this? They did this much more than we've done this, you know. They, you can and you, they'll tell you what they did, you know. How did they turn out, you know? And that gives some confidence. That yes, the path will be bumpy, it'll be challenging, sometimes will be very difficult, sometimes quite miserable. But that's how they turn out, and then if you get to meet them in person, people like Yang Rinpoche and Beno and Gen Lam Lama Zopa, and so forth. Say, Boy, if that's how they turn out, you know. Then it must be worth it. Must be worth the uh, the difficulties. This is the tremendous value of having a living tradition that we're not just reading old biographies this is still there so that gives the confidence a sense of ease because after all relaxation, relaxation we're going to see from Penjana himself this great Galuka master he also in, exactly in the vein of Mahmudra you're going to see he's emphasizing again and again and again relax relax how can you relax if you're feeling anxious <laughs> if you're fearful you know or if you just don't like it you know so this is where the refuge, and then the bodhicitta just makes your mind, your heart so spacious that it really does, in a way, bodhicitta is a great method for setting your mind at ease. You know. Then meditate on the path, profound path, or prof- meditate on the profound path of guru yoga. After hundreds of fervent appeals, heartfelt supplications, and just giving this a little bit of thought, I mean it's kind of obvious, really. But why hundreds? Why if, if Michelle wants, uh, Michelle has some request to put to me she doesn't have to send 100 emails.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> In fact, I really prefer you don't.
1: <laughs>
0: one well-placed email, succinctly put, from a person who's willing to help, and it's an area, yes, I think I can help there. One, she be sufficient. And I'm just an ordinary, ordinary dude, right? I'm not a Patmasambhava or you know, one of these great beings, not even remotely, like, but if, it's, if one is enough for me, then it must be certainly enough for Guru and Bachay, right? Or Avalokiteshvara, whoever. So, why hundreds? And there's a very good reason why. It's not like if this is Avalokiteshvara, these te- no, these, this is te- depends on the Okay, Manjushri, Manjushri, a um, very major figure for the Gelugpa tradition. It's not like Manjushri, you know, if, if, if the prayers of supplication are to Manjushri, and Manjushri they say as your yidam, indivisible from your guru. Let's imagine, that's very, very common in the Galupa tradition. It's not as if as you're offering your prayers of supplication or your fervent appeals to your guru, indivisible from Manjushri. It's not as if their you know, telephone is, is, is completely blocked with other calls. You know, they're just getting so many calls. You, every time you phone him, you get a busy signal. Like, oh, you, you, you know, try a hundred times. Hopefully, you'll, you know, you'll get through once. Oh, I'm finally, I finally got you on the phone. Don't, don't, don't hang up, don't hang up, you know. I have a re- it's not like that, right? It's not like that. Okay. So then why hundreds of calls? It gets worse. You, you wait, Mary Kay, it's going to get much worse. Very fast, it's going to get much worse. Why? It's for us. If I can say, it's for us, stupid. You know, I'm talking to myself. That we have many desires. Some little bit of desire for reputation. Oh, I wish I were more famous. Oh, I wish I had more money. Oh, I wish, oh, oh, I wish. We have many desires coming up, right? And they can, they'll diffuse us in all different directions. Oh, I wish I had a softer cushion. Oh, I wish I had a bit more of this. Oh, I wish well, I well,
1: well, well,
0: well, and said, "Oh, and I wish to achieve shamata, but I'd really like more oh, rice milk." <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you know, it's a crowded room—the room of our minds with desires. There's all kinds of desires, and so if oh, I'd like—you know—I don't want to say anything. You might start giving it to me, but you know, you're so, I have a very generous group here. Everybody listening by podcast, uh, very generous. Uh, so I'm not going to say anything at all. <laughs> I'd like more air. <laughs> We have many desires you know. and if the desire to practice and achieve shamatha is just one of a hundred then when you sit down on the cushion the other ninety-nine will come pl- flooding in as well you know. and that and one of the prerequisites you may recall inner prerequisites of actually achieving shamatha is having few desires so having a hundred is to crowd out all the rest especially if there's sincere appeal heartfelt appeal you know, fervent appeal it's that this is my desire this is my desire uh, yeah I'd like some more rice milk in fact I would not actually just to make sure you know you know, I'm fine I like black tea it's quite nice and I have plenty of black tea <laughs> <laughs>
1: you
0: know. but if that's the one that keeps on impinging upon your consciousness because you're arousing it again and, and again then when you go into the practice you remember you're arousing enthusiasm With refuge, bodhicitta, guru yoga, appeals, appeals, reflecting on the great adepts of the past and so forth, you arouse enthusiasm and then what? Samadhi. And samadhi, now you just go in and you leave all that stuff in the background, right? And you're just there, right? The chances are then you'll have far fewer desires, other desires arising. Because you've aroused this passionate yearning, this supplication, call for blessing. So many times that that's just filling your mind. It's filling your mind, okay? Like that. So, and then, after hundreds of fervent appeals, your guru dissolves into you. Okay, Mary Kay, you ready? So imagine that you're, you're still reifying yourself. you know, And you're reifying the guru. And then you say, and now, guru, please dissolve into myself. Oh, man, it's crowded. It's like having two people in a telephone booth. (laughs) You know, my skin, I got me and a... Hello, Rinpoche. (laughs) Can you move over a little bit? (laughs) I can hardly move. (laughs) We're both in the same (laughs) way. Two inherently existent beings in the same skin. That's really tight. (laughs) So it would be a really good idea before this. This is Vajrayana practice, of course that you read as much as you want, as much as you can, dissolve any kind of reification of self, of your body, your mind, your speech, yourself. Release it all. Release. And so you're still there. It's not like you blotted yourself out. But light, empty, a mere presence, having merely a nominal existence. And then you're calling in the guru, the guru indivisible from the yidam, the guru's mind being nothing other than Dharmakaya, Guru's speech being the speech of the Buddhist, Guru's body being the body, the Nilanakaya. And you're imagining these dissolving into yourself. And they don't say that the Guru comes in and bumps you out and takes over like you've had a, 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 a guruic possession. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like you got bumped out. Now the Guru's, <laughs> thank goodness Alan's gone. Here I am. You know? <laughs> <laughs> not Like, you know, billiard balls, when you put some English on the on the first ball, and, and knock the other one, and then it takes over the space. Not like that, okay? It's not like guruic possession. It's actually tapping into a theme that is very prominent in the Uttara Tantra, one of the five works of Maitreya, and that is that the, the mind stream of every sentient being is totally saturated by Dharmakaya. Every sentient being. doesn't matter who they are. They're virtuous, non-virtuous. But your own mind stream is already saturated, permeated by dharmakaya. Where your mind stream is, there is the mind of the Buddha. That's sutrayana. Sutrayana. right? And so there are, in a, in a manner of speaking, and that's exactly what this is, a manner of speaking where you are, there's the perspective of, of Elizabeth, for example, gazing out from a certain perspective. But right there from that same perspective and gazing out is also the mind of the guru. And so that's already true. But it's one of those truths that we're often not very explicitly aware of. And so here's a symbolic act of having generally the idea that the Guru, the Buddhas are somewhere out there and we're taking refuge, calling the Guru from afar, that kind of terminology. Taking refuge as we sit in front of the altar and we look upon the Buddha or a a symbol of the Buddha and taking refuge. It's very natural. And it's not crazy that we, when we, you know, we think of His Holiness Dalai Lama as an extraordinary being, a mahasattva, and then relying upon him, calling him, calling him from afar. It makes really good sense. It's not silly. But it's very natural that, you know, in some sense, we do regard the guru, the Buddha, and so forth, as being outside ourselves. That's all very well, but for this practice, we're seeking to go deeper and to release the outsidedness, the externality of the guru, and then this whole sense, is like pouring one glass of water into another glass of water, that there, as, as the Guru comes and melts indivisibly with, you, with yourself, so that your identity is not bumped out or displaced by the Guru, but your identity is still there, but totally inseparable from, indivisible from, that of the Guru. Yeah? And your mind, it's not like you don't have a mind, somebody else you know, possessed your mind, took over, kicked yours out, But your mind is indivisible, your thoughts are permeated by Dharmakaya. They're still your thoughts, your memories, your emotions, desires and so forth. They're not somebody else's. But they're permeated by Dharmakaya. If you speak, you're speaking in your language, you're drawing from your knowledge, your your personal history and so forth and so on. But your speech is permeated by the speech, let's say, of Padmasambhava. And your body is your body, it's not anybody else's body. It doesn't disappear. But it's permeated by the physical presence. Of, of namanakaya. What this does—it's very practical. This isn't just a religious, re, religious exercise or ritual. But you all know now. I think every single one of you, probably everyone listening to my podcast as well, you know very well that when you are settling the mind in natural state, and you're seeing all this stuff come up, and the deeper you go, the deeper you dredge, old memories will come up, emotions, desires, and then something sparks. It can be, especially when you're in retreat. I know this very well. When you treat, when you're getting very little input from the surrounding world, but then you maybe make a call to a loved one, or you or you say, I'll check this email. And then <zurlar> the cascade effect. Doesn't even have to be if, if it's high voltage, if it's something, some big drama, like a loved one has been found to have a serious disease or something like that. But even apart from that, little stuff can just set up such like an echo chamber. after. And get caught up in the ones, the the dramas of people close to one, in one's own life. It's very, very natural. But that takes up a lot of time. Because the mind has become very small. The The mind is operating only out of our personal focus of this individual in space, in time, unique, but very, very limited, right? And that means all this stuff becomes a big deal. Whereas from the perspective of the Buddha who gazes through your eyes, well, it's a much bigger perspective. Yeah. And so if you can be viewing it from that, even with just the power of imagination, whatever is coming up, as if, in my case, my root drop guru, of course, is His Holiness. How would His Holiness see the stuff that comes up in my life? don't need to give any specific examples, it's just one more life. But this, this comes up. How is His Holiness looking right through as if He was cohabiting you know, in a very loose, spacious, non-inherent way? cohabiting my perspective, how would he view this? Very differently than Alan Wallace in ordinary mode. Very differently. And much more spaciously. Right. And especially if you think of your, your guru as not only an extraordinary being, like His Holiness, but if you really have very deep guru, guru yoga with imbued with deep wisdom, insight, that you've not just you know given yourself slogans. And when you think of the guru, you're actually really thinking of Buddha, then, if you were a Buddha looking through your eyes, what would be your perspective on the stuff that comes up in your life? Very spacious, utterly unperturbed, and yet loving, caring, totally attentive, but unperturbed. So this really creates a sacred space before you go into the main practice. So they, they can never overemphasize. These simple, that took one verse and I spent so much time on it. But uh, this this can be the the deal maker and the deal breaker. Because so a lot of people, when they get into settling the mind as natural say, they just get overwhelmed by all this stuff coming up. They say, I can't deal with this anymore. It's too much. You know. This can be very helpful. So Benjanabuchi, I'm going very really slowly here, I'm sorry. Benjanabuchi gives a little bit of commentary on his own text. I love it. Uh, he says, the quote, the mind that is purely virtuous is the awakening mind, bodhicitta. And the profound path of guru yoga is a guru yoga that completes the por- a portion of the path, an integral f- feature of the path. This is a summary. The rest is straightforwardly understandable. So he figures, well, this text is not for people who have never heard anything about Buddha Dharma. This is not an initial introductory text. This is for people, at the very least, who are very familiar with Lamrim, Lamrim within the Galupa tradition. Uh, the, f- the four thoughts are turned the mind, and so forth. I mean, the basics are there in all the schools of Tibetan Buddhism. So he's assuming that. Now, the main practice. Therefore, having begun with the preliminary stages, I will explain the method for practicing mental abiding. Practicing mental abiding okay? Practicing shamatha. Now, I've, m- I've modified these verses quite a bit. So, um, I don't know whether they're better than worse, but I'm more comfortable with them. So with So, I'll read it slowly. Without engaging in any modifications due to obsessive thoughts of hopes and fears and so forth concerning evanescent appearances subtle for a while in unwavering meditative equipoise okay? now this, this is a root text so it's very dense, that's, that's what root texts are supposed to be and they're in verse, not in English but in Tibet, this is metered verse so without engaging any, any I'm going to try to give a brief commentary now although he's going to have his own commentary but just so we you know, know what the words mean without engaging in any modifications due to obsessive thoughts. So for other practices, if anger comes up, you do something about it. Apply an antidote. Shantidev has a big chapter on patience. What do you do? How do you modify your mind when it's toxic? With anger, hatred, belligerence, resentment, hostility, and so on. He'll tell you how to fix it, how to, how to heal your mind. You modify it. It's toxic. Detoxify it. Very, very good. In this practice, of course, as you well know, rather than being so much a developmental model of trying to transform and develop your mind, you're rather releasing and allowing the mind to heal, to unravel, to unknot itself. So therefore, you don't, in this practice, the specific practice, and this is a great Puglupa Lama, there's no way he's refuting Shandadeva and Lama and all of that, he's just saying this is complementary to all of these other classic teachings for which the Galupa tradition is extremely well known. So without engaging in any modification, not trying to change your mind and make it more wholesome. Uh, And and why would you you want to? Because of obsessive thoughts, of hopes and fears and so forth. So these come up. Instead of trying to antidote them, remedy them, blot them out and so forth, uh, concerning, and what are these thoughts about? Concerning evanescent appearances, memories, desires, images of all kinds. And so forth, they just come up and go. But then their nature is to just come up if they're orphaned, if they're not, how do you say, captured by grasping, as you, many of you have discovered. If you're just resting there in the simplicity, the ease of your own awareness, and a memory comes up, a desire, an emotion comes up, it comes up, and it fades. It just, it just slips away, it just dissolves away. You don't need to hammer it with anything, it will, it will just dissolve of itself, right? And so, hmm. so, they're evanescent. That is, these appearances don't last. Emotions don't last. Desires don't last. Memories don't last. They just come up. They fade away. But when we lock onto them, when we grasp onto them, when there's cognitive fusion, oh, then they can stay for a long time. And they can have a lot of repeat performances. And so, evanescent appearances, he's, again, this is a very dense, it's classic root text. He's packed a lot into very few words. So in this way, without engaging in such modifications, settle for a while an unwavering meditative equipoise. This, he just simply said, equipoise, finally I just, I just wanted to make it very clear, it's a meditative equipoise. And this just comes back to the theme from your friendly balance wallah. Equipoise is balance. It's exactly that. It's balance all the way through. And unwavering, unflickering, the unflickering candle flame. So that's how we start. So. The practice we did this morning, which really, as I recall, culminated just in settling that is body, speech, and mind, and then just resting there for a while. You know, just without venturing into some practice. I'm now going to start settling the mind as natural state. Or I'm now going to even now I'm going to practice awareness of awareness. It's just lingering there. Lingering there, having settled body, speech, and mind, and lingering there, just poised without doing anything. It's a shallow facsimile of Dzogchen meditation. Shallow, because it's not imbued with a view. But methodologically, oh, this is very, very close. right? You're not, you're not bifurcating experience into, I'm the subject here, there's the object over there, I'm attending to it. Just resting there. Open, present, clear, discerning, unmoving, not cogitating. And if you can linger there for a while, then when you take the step to settling the mind in its natural state, you have a firm basis, a platform, of that stillness, which then you will sustain through the whole session. As you are aware of thoughts, images, and so forth arising in the mind, you have a real chance of clearly distinguishing between stillness and movement. If you've drenched yourself, bathed for a while in the stillness, then when you direct that light of your awareness to movement, you won't be so easily immediately swept away. So this is kind of like the, the mo- moment just before starting the main shamatha practice. The culmination of that initial sequence of settling body, speech, and mind in the natural state. That's my interpretation of this first one. But now we go to the actual practice. Do not cease mental activity do not terminate mental activity do not try to shut the mind down don't just go blank even subjectively don't just go blank as you know so well now absolutely crucial to any shamatha practice is to maintain that clear flow of cognizance discerning cognizance that's a type of mental activity don't let that fade away as in swoon as if you'd fallen asleep fallen unconscious fainted or sleep this is not a trance. It's not anything like just falling into, into non lucid sleep or falling into a swoon. Post the century of undistracted mindfulness. So, the century is your undistracted mindfulness and maintain introspection of movement and awareness. So, your mindfulness here, well, we'll, we'll just let him say. So, under, but this, the, the century is often relating to introspection. Here he's saying, the century of undistracted mindfulness, without distraction, without forgetfulness, and maintain introspection of movement and awareness. So introspectively monitoring the stillness of your awareness and the movement of thoughts, the movements of the mind, while your mindfulness remains undistracted, unwaveringly present. But now you'll see what he's doing here. Focus closely on the nature of cognizance and luminosity, observing it nakedly. So right here, he's not going into settling in the mind, as Nasser say. There's no reference here in this verse to observing thoughts. Oh, watch this thought, watch that thought. He didn't say that. This undistracted mindfulness is mindfulness of focusing closely on the nature of cognizance and luminosity. Well, you remember, those are the two defining characteristics of consciousness. So this is shamatha on consciousness. And how do you identify consciousness? If you want to have shamatha on a banana, you know, it, need to know, if, and, you, and you have a whole bunch of fruit in front of you, apples, pineapples, and so forth, and somebody tells you, okay, now focus single pointing on bananas, giving a really prosaic example, because this is exactly in the same type. If you've got all kinds of fr- fruit in front of you, and somebody says, okay, practice five minutes of shamatha on banana. In order to do that, you have to know what are the defining characteristics of a banana that set it apart from everything that's not a banana. If you're kind of fuzzy on that one, if you're not quite sure, you know, then your practice is going to be fuzzy. And not everybody knows what a banana is. Especially you say it in English. Okay? And so that it's just that simple. If you're going to focus on a banana, you need to know what are the defining characteristics of the banana? So when you see one, you know it, and you know you know it. Right? And likewise, if you're going to be focused single-pointedly on consciousness, and that's exactly what this practice is, you focus on it by knowing what are its distinctive, unique, defining characteristics. You recognize them by way of that. right? If, I'm, if, if I'd like to identify Maria in the room, well, she doesn't look like anybody else in the room. Normally, of course but if i but i'm if i'm not quite sure who maria is because there's also marie and I know, i've known other marias in my life but the maria in this retreat how would i do that not being clairvoyant i can't just kind of look into her mind and see the maria thoughts but by noting we pretty much the face that's the most distinctive thing we always do that but maria's face doesn't look like anybody else's face and so if I recognize that, it doesn't have to have a list of characteristics, but I've seen it before and I recognize it, then as soon as I see Maria, oh yes, I can now practice shamatha on Maria's face. Because I recognize it. And there's no doubt about it that this is not kind of Maria, kind of Mary Kay and a little bit of Virgit. It's no, it's just Maria. So it's that. We, we, by way of the characteristics of, of Maria's face, then we can focus on Maria. Right? Because that's by way of. Her face is not her. Luminosity is not cognizance. It is not consciousness. Cognizance is a feature of consciousness. Consciousness has those two qualities. By way of those two qualities, we identify consciousness. Okay. So that's what he's doing. This is awareness of awareness. That's how he's starting this off. Okay. And so your mindfulness is of consciousness itself. maintaining that in an undistracted fashion. Introspection is monitoring your mindfulness of awareness, noting movement, noise, thoughts, and so forth, but noting also your awareness of the consciousness of which you are aware, and you're focusing on and identifying, and knowing you're identifying. uh, I've heard this many, many times. When I practice awareness of awareness, I have this afflictive uncertainty. Am I doing it right? Am I doing it right? Am I just sitting here with a blank mind? Or am I really continuing to identify, to know consciousness. And I don't have any trick for that one. Um, It's just come back and see, do you still know something? It's just that, and if if you know something, as you've been sitting there for five minutes, 10 minutes, quietly, because we are cultivating another mode of knowing, Normally, when we know something, it is embedded in concepts, language, memory, personal history, and so forth, the whole conceptual framework. And this is, again, I'll just use the same old one, it's just like eating chocolate, it's just the taste, and that's it. Do you kn- and you take another bite, do another bite. You don't need to think about it, but do you know, without thinking about it, chocolate, 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 chocolate. Yeah. If you know it, then that's cognizance. Consciousness, 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 without having to say any mantra, without reciting anything, are you continuing to be aware, let's put it really in ordinary language, are you continually aware that you are conscious? And now we focus in, are you continually aware of being conscious? Are you continually aware of consciousness? The experience of consciousness. That's it. I don't have any trick, but it is maintaining that knowing. And only you can tell. And so having some uncertainty is good. It keeps you a little bit on edge, so you don't just fall into complacency. But that's how he starts. So I thought it might be interesting here. Uh, quite a number of you have a significant background in the Galupa. And so here is Pinchinam He's just given a classic Mahamudra I mean that's just one verse but this is really classic Mahamudra shamatha practice awareness of awareness classic called shamatha without a sign it's called shamatha without a support I think it has some other names as well sometimes it's called yeah we'll just leave it at that but it's classic it's from the Mahamudra tradition and yet prior to Penchen according to Roger Jackson who's a good, good scholar he said he doesn't know he didn't find any other Mahamudra literature in the Gelugpa tradition including Rinpoche himself right and so is this really an infusion from something outside the Galupa tradition, outside the Kadampa tradition? Is he really drawing from something entirely outside of his own lineage, this particular shamatha method of just resting in awareness of awareness? And I can answer the question. Tsongkhapa. So in his medium exposition of the stages of the Path, Lamrim Ding, medium exposition, uh, there's, of course, a large section in shamatha. I've translated it in its entirety with detailed commentary and a lot of footnotes, so it's really quite thorough translation and commentary, explication of the meaning there. It's in my book, Balancing the Mind. And in his presentation there of shamatha in the Medium Lamrim, here's a quote from him, Tsongkhapa straight. One cause, and what he's returning to is one cause of introspection, because this is in a section discussing... Introspection. In fact, the, the title of this little section is called The Way to Develop Introspection That Recognizes Them, that's laxity and excitation, while meditating. How do you develop introspection? He tells you in this section. In that section, he says one cause of introspection is to focus the attention on an apprehended aspect, such as of the body of a deity. So recall, you might focus on the, the coil of hair at the Buddha's forehead, or on the ushnisha, on the crown protrusion, an aspect of the Buddha's body. So you're looking at the apprehended ap- uh, aspect, and that is an object, a quality of the, the face of the Buddha. So that would be classic. Okay, That's one technique. One is to focus the attention on an apprehended aspect such as the body of a, of a, of a deity, you're maintaining that with mindfulness, and as I say, later by triggering mindfulness, that will give rise to introspection as a derivative. Yeah? So that's one way, classic way in shamatha focus on some object, image of a Buddha. Or, he says, another cause is to focus the attention to an apprehending aspect that is from the side of the subject, an aspect of your subjective experience. The other one is apprehended aspect, this is an apprehended apprehending aspect. You may focus to focus attention to an apprehending aspect such as the sheer awareness and sheer clarity of experience. AKA, also known as sheer cognizance and luminosity of experience, these once again are the defining characteristics of consciousness. So that's Ritsong Kaba in Islamrim. So he's referring to it. You see, he's, he, he knew all this stuff. He was trained in all four schools in the Kagyu, and he was also trained in Nyingma's, as you saw. So he knew this, and he's alluding to this very clearly that this is a type of shamatha where you're, instead of directing your attention to something outside of awareness, you're directing it, inverting it right in upon itself, and attending to your own consciousness by way of these two apprehending aspects. That is, we apprehend with the facet of clarity and we apprehend with the facet of cognizance or awareness. And the practice is shamatha, focus on consciousness itself. So Tsongkhapa refers to this right here. And sheer it's thum in Tibetan. And that is without elaboration, without coating it, without cloaking it in any analogies, language, philosophical speculation, and so forth. Again, just the taste of, let's say, lemonade for a change. Just, just drink it. And don't think about orchards and don't no association. Just when it comes in, just drink it. You know, just that. Stop. Just just drink. Drink the lemonade. Drink the Kool-Aid. It's just that. Just that. In the scene let it be just the scene. When you're aware of awareness, let it be just that. Don't add anything to it. Take it naked. Take it straight. That's what the sheer means. Don't adorn it, cloak it in anything. Then by devoting yourself to mindfulness, as explained previously, because he's already talked about mindfulness, now he's talking about introspection, sustain the attention by continuously monitoring whether or not there is scattering elsewhere. So that's where the introspection comes in. You know what to do. Focus just on the sheer cognizance and luminosity of your own consciousness. But then monitor that flow by seeing well, when do you lose it? When are you dis- dispersed elsewhere? Recognize this as a critical factor for sustaining introspection. That's how you utilize it, and that's how you refine it. So he's taught it with this extraordinary precision, which is utterly characteristic of Tsongkhva's writings. So that's in the medium, the medium Lamrim. Uh, I think I'm the only one that's translated it, so that you can find it in Balancing the Mind. And then there's his great exposition, the Lamrim Chemu, this was translated by a whole team. I was one of the two translators for the shamatha section. So here he alludes to this again, but from a different angle. I found it very interesting. So here's from the Great Exposition, Sonkaba again. Even those who claim to stabilize their minds without an object of meditation. So there are those who say, well, there's there's shamatha with a support, with an object. There's shamatha without a support, with no object, right? So there's some some use that kind of terminology. Okay, now you can practice shamatha, no object. He's gonna refute that. And, and now you'll find out how. Even those who claim to stabilize their mind with an out without an object of meditation must first think, as they're sitting down to do the practice, I will keep my attention such that it does not stray toward any object whatsoever. Mm-hmm. And then keep their attention in that way. There has to be resolve. You don't just sit down and say, don't know what's going to happen. Let's see. Uh-huh. You're practicing awareness of awareness. You know exactly what you're going to focus on. And you're not going to focus on any appearances to awareness. I'm not going to be distracted elsewhere. In other words, you are focusing on an object. It's called awareness. After they have focused on the mind itself as an object of meditation, they must be certain to fix on this object without straying in any way. Thus, their own experience contradicts their claim that they have no object of meditation they do so some of you already found this out in fact it came up in a conversation today when doing the practice the, whether it's focusing on thoughts and images or whether it's resting in awareness of awareness there's this this quiet sense in the background I'm doing this I'm doing it. I'm doing it poorly. I'm doing it well, but yeah, here I am. I'm here. But I'm here. (laughs) So the sense of ego, the sense of self, of I am of of an inherent, inherently existent, separate internal agent here, doing the job, is not even being challenged yet, right? And so, from that perspective, and and then if somebody whispered in your ear, "What are you doing?" I'm watching, my, I'm watching my awareness. That's what I'm doing. Shh. Who invited you in here? Oh, it's my guru. Sorry. <laughs> so there is a sense of an object. is a sense of a subject. Whether you're watching thoughts, of course, watching thoughts from afar, we're going to hear that repeatedly. Right? Well, then who's way over here? If the thoughts are way over there, who's way over here? Well, me. Right? But even an awareness of awareness... There's a sense of being the one who's doing it. So Dzognyi Rinpoche has been asked, what's the difference between this flat-out shamatha practice, this one, uh, and resting in rikpa? And his answer, uh, I've heard from many of my students, who are also trained with him, uh, if you're doing the shamatha practice, you're doing the practice with grasping. If you're resting in rikpa, there is no grasping. So it's grasping, no grasping. And the grasping is exactly of this kind. And that is that bifurcation, dualistic grasping, because that's what we're really talking about here. I'm over here, my awareness is there, and I'm watching it, I'm doing a good job, yep, I'm really there, I'm really there. And you're not saying this, of course, because the grasping doesn't have to articulate itself, but it is that bifurcation of subject-object within the system of there being an observer and an observed. Right? That's grasping it's not something we can simply turn off. Like, oh, I was doing it wrong, I'll stop doing that. And they just go directly into a non-dual experience. That would be very nice, but it's not one of those things you can just stop. You know, And so this is a strategy. That's what this is, it's a strategy. And that is, this is a step on the path to move you in the direction of having a conceptually unmediated, non-dual realization of Rigpa. But we're taking these preliminary steps of shamatha so that we are making the frontal attack, so to speak. When we're ready to cut through to rikpa, we'll be able to not only cut through to rikpa, but actually sustain that awareness and not just have a fleeting experience that turns into a great memory. So the fundamental strategy, and we're going to see this in Mahamudra and Chen, is first of all, get your act together, for heaven's sakes. Get Get your mind together. Free the mind of obscurations. Relaxation, stability, stillness, and clarity. Get your act together. Bring a really exceptionally sane mind to the task so you are resting there. And then bring in the heavy weight, bring in the the very deep practice, vipassana, to cut the root of the mind. That's a terminology used. To cut the root of the mind. And that is to cut the reification, your own reification of your own mind as the mind of a sentient being as something separate, something individuated, something inherently existent. As long as that's there, as long as that's unchallenged, whether it's quiet or whether it's quite explicit, as long as that's there, then we do have kind of the joke, you know, you invite the guru in and you're two people into telephone booths. You're really here, and you're probably invited in a reified guru as well. And it gets very cramped in there, you know, it's kind of silly. But most importantly, if you want to realize Rick you cannot simultaneously be reifying your mind as the mind of a sentient being. No possibility of that. So it does happen on, for very gifted individuals. They'll go right into awareness of awareness and they're just like a hot knife through butter, cut right through the mind, right through the substrate consciousness and realize Rigpa. And with a kind of a boomerang effect, poorly stated, but I'll say it anyway, by realizing Rigpa, then the boomerang, boomerang effect is, then they realize the emptiness of the mind and the emptiness of all objects to the mind. It does happen. Padmasambhava refers to it in natural liberation. So there are people who, who, who are ripe enough to go directly from shamatha right into rikpa, and then viewing reality from the perspective of rikpa, Then they see this person's mind. Ivan's mind is kind of like this, this fluff. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah, that doesn't exist. Not inherently. That's an empty appearance. Because you're viewing it from rigpa, and you'll see it in fact as an effulgence of rigpa, rather than being something inherently existent that's somehow in intention with or contradictory to rigpa. You know? But for those who are not supremely gifted like that, then the strategy—and this is Padmasambhava's strategy—it's classic, it's Karma Chameramajju's strategy. He made it so clear in the spacious uh, space of Path Freedom. Shamatha, for reasons that if they're not clear now, there's nothing more I can say. And then the Vipassana on the nature of the mind above all. To cut through, to see the utterly contrived, conceptually created, constructed, purely nominal. How's that? Purely nominal. Like, who do these glasses belong to? There's a correct answer to that. There's only one correct answer to that. It's true. They belong to me. And why? Purely nominal. Purely nominal. There's nothing more to it than that. It's an agreement. It's a manner of speaking. And we agree, so I still have my glasses, nobody's stolen them, thinking they were there, or just it was a free-for-all, glasses for sale, or for free. But it's purely nominal, right? And to actually fathom that which we take right to our essence, to our heart, to our very sense of existence, I'm a sentient being. And to see that's as nominal as these are my glasses. Oh, then, if if you're that far if you're that far along the way on shamatha vipassana and you have the muscle of shamatha not only to get a glimpse of that but to sustain that awareness that you as a sentient being have nothing more than a nominal status. And what does that mean? You're not even a sentient being at all unless you're so conceptually designated. These are not my glasses at all. There's no truth to that at all unless somebody says it. Somebody thinks it. If that doesn't happen without the verbal and or conceptual designation, these glasses have no owner whatsoever. It's just a fact. And of course, I can say, Cloudy, you want a, You want them? He said, yeah, sure. Then there he is. Purely nominal. So to consider that that is our status as sentient beings, that it's just nominal. If that's it, realize Rigpa. You know, is so close. Whereas if you're really quite convinced existentially, like really, I'm a sentient being, well, then you have rikpa as a potential. You have a Buddha nature as a potential. One day when you're good, you'll grow up and realize Buddhahood. But you're so inherently a sentient being, for the time being, you have no chance at all. So keep on operating out of your perspective of being a sentient being. And check your clock. It's going to be three countless eons. From now until enlightenment. Operating out of that perspective as a sentient being, that's how long it takes. Three countless eons. Right. Operating out of the perspective, having dissolved that, having seen it has only a nominal status, utterly empty, and then practicing fr- with your pr- closest approximation of practicing from the perspective of Dharmakaya. Oh, that cuts three countless eons down to bat of an eyelash. Boy, I'm going slowly. So that is that. Let's just read a little bit more. I have 30 seconds. <laughs> because he's now, he's, he's just given a method, right? A very clear, very succinct. Boy, how you, you can't get more, more succinct than that. That's awareness of awareness, right? But now in the very next verse, he, he's, he's done doing something else. Whatever thoughts arise, identify each one. Okay, no, that's familiar. Just identify each one. That's, well, we know that. That's taking the mind as the path. And by thoughts, bear in mind this term, thought is generic. It's not just discursive thoughts. It's images, it's memories, desires, emotions. It's all that stuff. I asked Yang young Turn-off-ish about that. You remember? I asked him. When you say Namdok, Namdok, are you referring just to thoughts or are you referring to all this other stuff? He said, all the other stuff too. Yeah, so it's a big generic umbrella term for the activities of the mind. So whatever comes up in that specific domain of the mind that is uniquely mental, thoughts, images, the domain that's left over when you're dreaming. Whatever thoughts arise, identify each one. There it is. And he'll say later, as if from afar. And Patmasambhava says, as if you're a herder, a, like a shepherd, observing your flock from afar. Same. But then he flips right over again to another method. Alternatively, like a swordsman, immediately cut off any thought that comes up. And he will elaborate on that so I don't need to right now. But there's another method. There's another method. So one is observe the thoughts. The other one is, is as soon as they pop their heads up, just decapitate them. They, they say hi, and they have no head, you know. They said, oh, you know. Swordsmen, you know, Whatever comes, They don't get a chance, they want to say something. So where did this come from? This would be the last note for today. And that is... This comes from multiple sources, but it's really classic. Classic Mahamudra. Shamata. It's classic Dzogchen Mahamudra. Dzogchen Shamata. And I'm just drawing, just as a reminder, from Spacious Path to Freedom. There's just two juicy, juicy summaries of this. Uh, This is from the Spacious Path to Freedom that we covered last year. Uh, And the... And Kamachamana Bhaje is referring to the essential instructions of the Mahasiddha. Maitripa. Maitripa. Just let me check that. Out. of the essential uh, essential instructions of the Mahasiddha, Maitripa, and so Maitripa. And he's summarizing here. But here's what. But now we have just had these two methods taught by, by Sonkabhad. Right now, let's see. Let's go back several hundred years. It's the same method. Back to Maitrepa, back to India. So here, here's the tech, and there, there are two techniques here. One of these is shamatha, in which the attention is focused on conceptualization. Whatever thoughts arise, identify each one. That's what Pinjanamachi said. Now here, in Karmacham, it's straight Gagyut tradition, going right back to Maitrepa. In relation to the excessive proliferation of conceptualization, I'll call it thoughts, such as, including such afflictions as the five poisons, Craving, hostility, delusion, envy, and pride. Or the three poisons, you know then. Whatever kind of thoughts come up. Thoughts that revolve in subject-object duality. Thoughts such as those of the ten virtues, so very nice thoughts. The six perfections or the ten perfections. Just two lists. Whatever wholesome and unwholesome thoughts arise, steadily and non-conceptually observe their nature. Classic, taking the mind as a path. By so doing, they are calmed in non-grasping. Clear and empty awareness vividly arises without recognition that you're not caught up in identifying this versus that. Because it's empty awareness. And it arises in the nature of self-liberation. Such that thoughts arise and they self-release, they self-liberate, in which it recognizes itself, awareness recognizes itself. All the noise noise dies down, the screen goes blank or the three-dimensional holodeck goes blank and then all you're left with is, as your mind dissolves into the substrate consciousness, your awareness recognizes itself. Again, and this occurs intermittently, along the path, not just at the end of the path. Again, direct the attention to whatever thoughts arise, and without acceptance or rejection, let it recognize its own nature. Rang-nang, they're called. The Tibetans, the uh, the thoughts are self-illuminating. Let it recognize its own nature. Let your own awareness recognize its own nature, as thoughts come and go. Thus, implement the practical instructions on transforming ideation or thoughts into the path. So instead of thoughts being an abstraction, instead of there being noise, you're transforming them right into the path. They are grist for the mill. So there's one one practice. He just summarized that in one paragraph. One more and we're finished. Because he gives one more method from Maitripa. And he refers to this as the ultimate shamatha of maintaining the attention upon non-conceptualization. He doesn't say awareness of awareness. He says on non-conceptualization, whenever thought comes up, Cut them down. As soon as they emerge, cut it right down. This is what you're doing here. With a body possessing the seven attributes of Arochana, sit upon a soft cushion in a, dark, in a solitary darkened room. <coughs> Vacantly direct the, the eyes into the intervening, intervening, like, intervening vacuity, the space in front of you. See that the three conceptualizations, thoughts of the past, future, and present, as well as wholesome, unwholesome, and ethically neutral thoughts, together with all the causes, assembly, and dispersal of thoughts of the three times, all thoughts of every kind, basically. Every thought of every kind, without exception. See that they are completely cut off. Whatever thought pops its head up, cut it off, right there, immediately. Bring no thoughts to mind. So if they come up, cut them off, and don't add any yourself. Silence. In this darkened room, let the mind, like a cloudless sky, be clear, empty, and evenly devoid of grasping, and settle in utter vacuity. By so doing, there arises shamatha of bliss, luminosity, and non-conceptuality. Examine whether or not there enters into that attachment, hatred, clinging, grasping, laxity, or excitation, and recognize the difference between virtues and vices. So it's stillness and motion. That's the stillness, resting in this utter vacuity devoid of grasping. But should motion arise, motion triggered by attachment, hatred, clinging, and so on, virtues and vices, recognize them by just resting there. And to the best of your ability, you're resting in non-conceptuality. Just a beeline like an express train going right through in a dark room taking no real interest in any thoughts. You just cut them off as soon as they go, because you're in just an express train, going right from where you are to the substrate, like that. So that's got a little bit of the, uh, the background. I thought interesting. Okay, enough for today. <laughs> He's so intense. I'm really mellow myself, but Pensioner Bush is so intense. <laughs> everybody's laughing here. You people in the... Everybody's laughing at me. I don't know why. There's strange people here. Enjoy your evening. See you tomorrow morning.